Hello, and welcome to the Extension Experience Podcast with your hosts, Josh Bouchong, Trent Malachik, and Dana Zook. Here you'll find insights into Oklahoma agriculture from West Area Specialists employed by Oklahoma State University Extension. Their perspectives come from assisting county educators and producers in the areas of agronomy, animal science, and economics. Thank you for joining us. Welcome to the Extension Experience Podcast. I'm Dana Zook. I'm Trent Malachik. Josh Bashong. And this week we have with us uh, one of our educators from the Northwest District of Oklahoma. This is Tommy Puffenberger. He is the first victim of our Educator Spotlight series. He's giving me the scary look now. Um, we wanted to bring on some educators from Oklahoma Cooperative Extension to kind of give you a feel for the people that really make Extension connect between the university um, and the people uh, in the country. Um, the people that we serve. And so these extension, county extension educators are really the key to the extension system. And so welcome, Tommy. Thank you. Um, to begin, let's talk a little bit about uh, you uh, and what brought you to extension. Give us a little background. Well, I grew up in uh, Alfalfa County, grew up on a farm and ranch, and uh, our, our primary commodities were alfalfa uh, and horses with uh, beef cattle and stalkers and wheat following after that. So um, not a real diverse background as far as agronomic, but pretty extensive in those areas. I uh, went to college and got an equine management degree, and I've got an ag business degree, and then followed up with a natural resource and ecology management degree. So uh, how did I choose those? I thought that getting those various degrees would help me more with what I was uh, trying to accomplish if I wanted to go out in the industry and and uh, instead of just everything agronomy or everything animal science. So I, I think it's made me a, a, a more well-rounded educator in the county by having those degrees and got out of college and uh, hauled a lot of hay commercially and uh, shoot a lot of horses and and it was it was time that to put those degrees in place and and uh, Alfalfa County came open, and I wanted to stay in, in rural America, and so that's that's how I came to Extension. That's great. Well, I would say personally, um, as being an Extension about six years, Tommy is one of the educators that really has a vast knowledge of, like you said, agronomy, animal science. He'll talk probably a little bit more about the youth development side, very strong in the 4-H area. Um, but we've done a lot of different programs together, all of us area specialists. So maybe we'll go around and talk um, a little bit about some of the programs that we've all cooperated in, maybe with Tommy. I guess I can start. In the past, we've done, I think you've gotten me started in the backyard chicken thing. That's great. That's I, great. I think that you, uh, everybody's laughing. And for those of you who don't know, the backyard chickens or poultry in general is not my background at all. Um, but Tommy asked me to do it, I think four years ago, five years ago, asked me to do a chicken program at Alfalfa County. And I, I didn't say no because I have a hard time saying no. Um, but I think we had 35 people at that chicken program. Yep. Well, we, we got to think outside the box on our programming. And when you sit in the office and you field questions from the from public and the producers, you know, you start to have these, you need some help. And that's where the area specialists come in. And, and you can't do your job as a county educator without area staff. 
because they that, that's y'all are the experts in that field. So uh, just consistently getting poultry questions, and it was time to to step up and and do a poultry program. So <laughs> I thought it was great. It's 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 took you a lot of places, and and there's a lot of really uh, good information out there because of that. Yeah. So, um, Oklahoma cooperative extension doesn't really have a poultry specialist anymore. And I am not the poultry specialist, but we do field a lot of backyard poultry questions. (laughs) We do field a lot of chicken (laughs) questions. I'm not the chicken lady, but it is a fun kind of area that Tommy got me involved in. I have to say I had, I have everything I have learned really is from, you know, just experience and, and just teaching myself, but that's, that's part of our jobs, right guys? I mean, um, we, expand into areas we don't know anything about because that's what all the other people have to do too. I mean, I'm a beef nutrition feedlot focused person, but I do rarely do that anymore. I do a lot of other crazy stuff. So I'll quit talking and Trent, you want to talk a little bit about what you've worked on with Tommy? Uh, Tommy, we've done a lot of meetings and budgeting and farm bill and all that doesn't really interest me. Uh, What interests me is that you're a commercial (laughs) hay hauler and that's Square bales, right? Little square bales. Little square bales. And I want to hear more about that because that sounds miserable. (laughs) (laughs) It'll it'll give you carpal tunnel. (laughs) Literally. (laughs) So, uh, uh, you know, growing up, like I said, we, you know, that was our main uh, crop when we grew up was alfalfa. So, you know, it wasn't, you know, you hold it on a wheat truck and, you know, you haul 30,000, 40,000 bales just for your dad by your, you know, with, with a crew on a wheat truck. Uh, once they came out with a Dewey's wagon, you know, that made, that made life a lot great. You know, I shoot that, you know, you can haul a lot of hay. So did you have to produce then three times as much? Because, no. oh, okay. I didn't know. <laughs> no, it's like everybody else. The more you make, the more you want, but uh, your body tells you when you got to quit. And, uh, that's, that's one thing great about being an extension where I'm at is I have worked for a lot of the producers in Alfalfa County, you know, mm-hmm. whether it be hauling hay or, or, uh, used to do a lot of day working and, and doctoring cattle and things like that. So working cattle. So it's nice to have that relationship with those individuals. And, and now those individuals, kids or grandkids are coming back to the County and taking over the farm and, it's been great, but the commercial hay hauling, you know, there it's a, it's a, it's a tough job, but it's, it's rewarding. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, you meet a lot of people as far as not just the producers, but also, you know, we used to load a lot of semis that would go to Texas or wherever for dairies. And then we'd load lots of bull wagons, you know, put hay in bull wagons, line them with plastic and send them to Florida and, so you meet a lot of individuals and and uh, get into a lot of situations as far as the economics of it, you know, whether it's it's the money issues part of it or might be sending that load of hay to Florida and then that, that truck, it gets pretty humid down there. So we need to make sure that hay's cured out before it goes so it doesn't mold on them, mm-hmm. you know. So it, it, it gets to the point where the automatic wagons were invented and once they came in, that that took away a lot of it. People had to build new barns. Mm-hmm. Once the new barns were built, that could accommodate a stack wagon. There were individuals that didn't want to do that. People that were still putting up a lot of little squares to to feed themselves or were after that horse market. So the little bells were still there. And, 
you know, I got out of it just because it got to be a, a mainly a labor issue and there wasn't the demand for as many dairy little squares as there was the horse hay. So you have to, from an economic standpoint of feeding the family, do I need to do something else or can I continue to do this? So, yeah, it sounds like a pretty big business. And we've talked about that on the podcast before, the struggle of marketing something that's not a commodity. And yeah, you have firsthand experience with that marketing hay and, and the different markets that it's going into, the different quality aspects of hay and how you how you try to push that into different markets. And yeah, we'll we'll probably talk about that a little bit more when it comes to alfalfa production in a later podcast. But I just thought that was very interesting. You know, people talk about a hay crew nowadays, probably two front end loaders with spikes and, and yep. you run across a field yep. picking up round bales. But in, but what you're talking about is just a completely different animal from a labor standpoint and organization and things were just so much more difficult back then. Well, you know, physically people can only handle so much hay, but you know, there, there's, there were three crews up in that area that, uh, that hauled a lot of hay and you got to respect those guys for the hours they put in. And, and I know once you get into that business, you know, you don't want to leave that field until it's in because you're afraid it's going to get wet. You know, once that bale's wet in the field, the dollar amount comes down pretty quick. And then it's like, well, I still got five more fields to go haul. And I know there's 3000 bales in each one of those fields. And, you know, so you, you really push yourself to the limit, what you can physically and your crew can do. And, you don't just have two guys, you might have six or seven guys working for you and, and trying to rotate. And But as far as the economic part of that, uh, one of the best things I ever heard from an alfalfa producer was he said, that if you bail hay for a horse, you can always sell it to a cow guy. Hmm. Mm-hmm. But if you, if you bail it for a cow, you've already limited your market. True. Mm-hmm. That's so, wise advice. It's just trying to put up quality instead of quantity of your hay helps you on your marketing side of the alfalfa. Well, Josh, what kind of stuff have you worked on with Tommy that you want to let our listeners in on? Want or not to want to talk about, I guess. <laughs> no, only positive experiences on my end. Yeah. Uh, just like Trent said, we've done a lot of programs, kind of classroom style with Tommy. Anything from dicamba training to applicator training to alternative double crops and everything else. But uh, one of the things I've always noticed about Tommy is he's always trying to make it relatable to the producer and always trying to be observatory about what we got going on and trying to get that uh, information out of what we're doing, whether it be field demos with those small grains, you know, make an observation, which ones the deer liked. Uh, yeah. Yeah. We're not out there just to go through the motions, say we did a field trial and whatever data we get, we get always trying to figure out what we're trying to learn from it. Uh, try to get that extra impact out of it and anything from the field days, uh, it's easy just to go through. You've had long term wheat variety trial and we always had those field days in the spring and it's not just going through the varieties, but which varieties are important to your farmers that we want to key in on. Uh, but that's what I've always noticed what value you can add to the producers in your area. Right. You know, sometimes the the goal of what you you're trying to put a research plot out or something for, sometimes you gain other experiences or other information that you're not even thinking about. Yeah. And uh, just like we were you were talking about that uh, small grains plot, you know, uh, having to start putting a, a deer pressure number on those wasn't <laughs> something we even thought about <laughs> at the beginning, you know. But since that, you know, 
were able to make some recommendations to to uh, people in the agritourism business, bringing in hunters to put in deer plots on on uh, what varieties of small grains they can plant, you know, whether it be wheat or barley or oats to help the deer come in. Mm. So, you know, something that you gain from a, a plot that wasn't even, it wasn't even thought of when you, in the, in the beginning of it. Yeah. So. Yeah, that's crazy. Do we talk about anything else about that trial? Or we just talk about <laughs> the deer pressure. I think back on that and I'm like, I think we just talk about the deer pressure. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, it's, it's, you, you you always have a goal of what you're wanting to go after, mm-hmm. but if you if if you're always trying to think outside the box, there's always something else that seems to come along. Yeah, didn't mm-hmm. we? I think I think we remember. Didn't we cut it too short to start all those small grains? And yeah. then and, and then originally it, it was kind of more of a cover crop soil yes, health yes, aspect. Yes, I think I remember and that. We looked at roots and everything like that. Well, it went back but to we, when you were planting your uh, if you were planting too many turnips in with your rye you were covering that rye crop up and it was shading it out. Yeah. So then at the end, when the, mm-hmm. when the turnips were either eaten off or uh, cut off, there wasn't enough rye to cover. Mm-hmm. So your production was down on that. So a <laughs> couple um, cool things, I guess, from that. Yeah. But yeah, that I remember us like the recommendations for a forage plot. We just thought we would cut it as cl- you know far down as we could. Well, it couldn't grow back. <laughs> and so we had to look at, you know, just some other stuff about it. Live and learn with some of those demo well, plots. That goes back to, to uh, a practical situation that, you know, we got a lot of, we got a lot of pasture out there and, and sometimes individuals think, boy, I can put 40 out there instead of 30 and we overgraze it. And then, mm-hmm. you know, we don't understand why it comes back as quick. Mm-hmm. So we need to, you know, we need to start slow and build if it still stays there and not overgraze at the beginning. So, yeah. you know, it, it works. Yeah. It's, it's one of those deals. You just kind of roll with it. Thank goodness Josh came along and he provided some ag agronomy <laughs> insights. <laughs> I think that was shortly, we had that shortly after he started, but so um, I want to hear about your rodeo clown program, Tommy. I don't know if Josh and Trent know anything about that, but it, can you tell us a little bit about how you got started with that? Well, uh, trying to think outside the box and have unique programs. And one of the things that, that we do is not just uh, ag programs, but we also are involved with the 4-H youth development program. We have 4-H program, but we do a lot of classroom, ag in the classroom. When you're thinking about ag in the classroom, if I want to go to schools, I want to try to promote ag products or ag programs. And uh, so you try to think of something neat that's going to capture a, a young person's attention. So being trying to be cultural, de- culturally diverse and talking about things like that. One of the individuals that um, I'm, I'm kind of captivated is Bill Pickett. And Bill Pickett is the one that they they credit for uh, inventing bulldogging. Okay. So he did that by he would he would jump off his horse and and bite a steer on his top lip and throw him down. Really? Which, yeah, really. <laughs> this man would do yeah. this. He was an okay. African American <laughs> cowboy. He worked for the one hundred and one ranch over okay. in Ponk City. Hmm. Uh, extremely extremely good good cowboy, and uh, that turned into to throwing them by bulldogging them. They changed it to bulldogging by twisting their horns and throwing them down. So I want to be able to to teach about some cultural diversity and, and mm-hmm. about the individuals that uh, built Oklahoma and how they could do that. And then you, so we start talking about bulldog and when we start talking about the other events in rodeo. Okay. And, you know, 
we can sit there and monotone a program and you, you know, kids lose their attention pretty quick. Mm -hmm. So my sister was a school teacher in O'Keen and she had told her kids if they read so many books, I think she was teaching second grade at that time, told her kids if they read so many books, they get this party and they're going to have a clown come in. The clown calls the day before and says, I'm sick. I can't come. She goes, you can come do this for me. <laughs> she so, told you, right? Yeah, she, yeah, she told me. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so, so once again, it's an ag in the classroom program. And, and I thought, well, how am I going to tie this into a Bill Pickett program? So basically I got some good friends that are, that are, that are rodeo clowns, mm -hmm. you know, bullfighters or barrel men, funny men. And, uh, hung out with them and and I just got to thinking about that so we just we just got together and and get get uh in the bullfight in the tire and get a lot of good music playing and get them pumped up and and uh we tied that all told them about each event and how they uh work into rodeo and then we get them up and get them exercise because uh cowboys are athletes just like basketball players football anybody else it's an athlete they have to exercise mm -hmm. so we get them up and get them exercising. We've got stick horses and, and barrels and, and they run the barrels on stick horses. And, mm -hmm. and that's an egg in the classroom on the history of rodeo and Bill Pickett. Oh, so. that's cool. And so you took this quite a ways. This went beyond your sister's classroom, right? Oh, yeah. yeah I've been. That's one thing great about cooperative extension and the ex educators and all the counties is being able to go and share. If you've got a, a unique program, you can go give that to them and they can bring something to your county. And and that's something that not everybody wanted to delve into, you mm -hmm. know. So as a matter of fact, I don't think anybody wanted to delve into <laughs> that. So yeah, I've had the opportunity to go a lot of places with that program and, and other states and and uh, it's been great. It's been, it's, it's, it's reached a lot of people and the kids, you know, getting those kids up and getting them doing mm -hmm. exercises and running barrels. It's, it's fun. Yeah. So another, another kind of 4-H youth development program that was very successful in Alpalpa County was your horse camp, right? Did you do that for 20 years? Yeah, we, we started just doing a, a camp out and uh, I remember the very first camp out where the, it was the very first trail ride we ever did. We at that time I was the uh, 4-H agent in Alfalfa and Grant counties both, and we had a trail ride out at the Great Salt Plains State Park, and <clears throat> had 50 50 kids show up, and the parents just dropped them off, and I didn't have but one other person to help me with this trail ride, and <laughs> I was a nervous wreck the whole day. I've been around horses my whole life, but have 50 kids out there, you know, with no help, I was a little nervous. And after that, I said, okay, anytime we're going to do this again, we have to have an adult present. And it turned into an overnight camp for the county. And then it turned into a two county and a three county. And then it turned into district wide. And then it finally turned into a statewide horse camp. So on Memorial Day weekend for for 20 years now, we've canceled the last two this year because of the coronavirus and last year because of the tornadoes. Mm -hmm. um, we've done, we've had a horse camp for three days and two nights or four days and three nights over Memorial Day weekend for 19 years. And you rotate it throughout the state. So you've been out to uh, Black Mesa, mm -hmm. all the way down to the Southeast. Clear it's all over. McCurtain County to okay. Frederick to, to clear up in the Northeast part. So okay. we've done that because two reasons. One, I want to be able to show the people the, the diversity of yeah. Oklahoma. So we went from from arid <laughs> to forest in, in the state of Oklahoma and everything in between. We've had camps where 
you might be at Cheyenne Valley and the wind blows 100 mile an hour the mm-hmm. whole weekend and you get red dirt in your teeth. <laughs> and we've been in northeastern part of Oklahoma where you just pick ticks the whole time. <laughs> so it, it's it's neat. And the people that come, are they, they get to be a family. You, you spend a lot of time together eating and socializing and, and lots of, we have lots of good educational speakers come in. And that, that adds to the program besides just the trail ride. We spend, actually spend more time doing educational components. All of it's hands-on. We do more of that than we actually do riding. Yeah. More like, uh, you do some arts and crafts and you do lots of camping and cooking and, and fun, like camping type stuff during that time. You know, we'll have people come in and show them how to clean their saddles or we'll have, uh, equine chiropractors come in. We've had, a a person come in and show us how to chip a horse, Okay, you know, microchip a horse. That got big after uh, Hurricane Katrina came in and Louisiana lost a lot of horses, but they had them all microchipped. So, you know, anything that's relevant to the time or to, to equine education, we've tried to bring in um, and, and make it relevant to the, we always try to find, we always engage the county agent in that, in that county because they know that local talent. So we always try to get young people to come in and one night have a entertainment mm-hmm. night. So, you know, we've had kids come play fiddles and banjos and guitars, and we've had kids square dance. And mm-hmm. so that gives those youth and that community another ter- time to perform at a, what we would consider a statewide 4-H function mm-hmm. for their record books. So it takes a lot of people to carry it out. Uh, and, it by moving it around, not only being able to see the, the the topography of the land and what's there, we've we usually spend a half a day touring something. So we'll go to museums or saddle makers or museum. And there's lots of museums, um, and we we do that for twofold. Kids really do like museums, whether you think they do or not, if it's what interests them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But you also have to have things tied into the family. Yeah. You know, and, and make it family wide and, and keep your parents and, you know, the oldest person I've ever had at horse camp because we call it family horse camp. It's not limited to the 4-H kids. Uh, we encourage all family members to come. And the oldest person I've ever had was 88. Oh, wow. That's great. <laughs> yeah. And then the youngest one was three days old. Okay. So it is truly family. Yeah. And the three-year-old or the, I said three-year-old, three days old. Three days old. Three yeah. You said three, day old, three days old. That was from a, a former... 4-H'er that had been coming to horse camp her whole life. And then, you know, then she comes back with her, her mom and dad, grandma and grandpa now that uh-huh. there's a, a grandkid yeah. there. So it, uh, it's, it's unique that way. Well, that's extensive from the youth development standpoint. Yeah. Um, and Dana, he mentioned something a second ago, cooking. Now I've heard Tommy, you know, your way around a Dutch oven, don't you? Yeah. yeah I forgot yeah, about that. A lot of fun. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That was one of the, one of the very first, outdoor uh, natural resources programs I had was uh, teaching you how to t- uh, cook with a Dutch oven to not scar the environment. Interesting. So if, if you want to go to the city park and you want to cook with a Dutch oven and you throw your charcoal out there on the ground, you're going to burn all the vegetation and then you have a weed population come back. Mm-hmm. So there was a lady by the name of Luann Sewell Waters that worked for the Department of Wildlife at that time. That She's been all over the world teaching Dutch oven. So I had her come to Alfalfa County and teach a basic Dutch oven class on how to prepare your, your food while 
leaving what they call leave no trace principles. If you've ever heard of leave mm-hmm. no trace principles. Mm-hmm. So we, we leave the land as we leave it, as we found it. And uh, Scott Price, we had a lot of ag educators, a lot of, we had a, a couple of FCS educators come to that yeah. and uh, have carried that on for years. Uh, Scott Price got his start there. I, that's why I want to claim that he got his start there. And, and he's been the, uh, the cook at the Chisholm Trail Centennial Cattle Drives. Really? So. And Scott was a former educator. He was a former educator. Grant County. Yeah. Grant County. Okay. Ag agent. Um, did a great job over there. And, and you talk about a cook now. He can cook. Yeah. You know, he can cook. And uh, Larry Klump was a former 4-H agent in uh, K County. And he started doing our, one of the things we found out when we did horse camp and camping out is Trent might like to eat a steak. And Josh might want to have a hot dog and Dana might want to have a burger. Well, everything cooks at a different time. Yeah. And somebody wants donut for breakfast and somebody wants biscuits and gravy. And it was real hard at the beginning to have any type of control of the day's activities if you didn't control the day's activities. (laughs) And the meals were the hardest thing to control. Plus, you have, you know, 25 families there. You, You know, the biggest camp we ever had was 135 people. That's a lot. That's that's to feed. That's that's a lot of people. Yeah. Well, if they're fixing their own, that's okay. But that means you have probably thirty-five different campfires. Mm-hmm. When the wind's blowing thirty-five and forty mile an hour, you get real nervous. And thirty-five different ideal supper times, right? Right. <laughs> you know. So I found out for my nerves and not setting the country <laughs> on fire that we needed to have control of the meals, and we could have meal times. We we have one fire now. And uh, by having one fire, we get those people together to socialize more and they get to know people better and they get to visit about their family and their history and the kids get together more. Mm-hmm. So uh, if cooking with Dutch ovens is very unique that, you know, you can you can set the oven at the at the house and you might say we're going to eat it at noon, yeah. you know, mm-hmm. but Dutch ovens sometimes the wind or the rain can can have a uh, time factor on when something's ready. So having a cook come in and Larry Klump was our first cook that came in and then uh, he stepped down and then Scott came in and cooked, has been cooking every meal since. Mm-hmm. Um, I can go up there and say, well, we're going to eat at 12 and you can go by Scott and say, well, he goes, man, give me 10 more minutes. The wind's blowing so hard. And mm-hmm. instead of it being 90 degrees today on Memorial Day, it's 50 degrees. Uh-huh. Uh, give me 10, 15 more minutes. We can go do another educational activity. Okay. And keep them busy and keep them going. And then when it's done, uh, Scott doesn't only just cook that meal. Uh, he's the one that does all the cleanup. And he's he's done a great job with that. We have some families that will come and help that don't ride. Mm-hmm. So it's not just about riding. This, this horse camp is about a, a total educational experience. So uh, Scott's wife, Dee, has, has came and helped him. So to be able to get up from that meal and throw your trash away and go do something else, you can go right back to programming. So the Dutch oven aspect of it, I know we've got several families that came and have started doing Dutch oven cooking because of camp. Yeah. You know, they, they, uh, by seeing it three meals a day for three days, you, you <laughs> start impressive. to feel comfortable, mm-hmm. you know, and there's times where we will come to the, to the meals early just so they can watch Scott and what he does. Mm-hmm. And he can talk, he'll, he's always good to talk about, you know, how much charcoal he's using or how much wood he's using, you know, so. So I've got a question. How many coals do you need for 350 degrees? 
Question. <clears throat> Ideal is that a, conditions is, is, outside. Is that well, a, my husband does it too. So is I that don't a know. shallow pot or a deep pot? <laughs> uh, deep. Let's say 12 inch. 12 inch deep lodge pot. There's a, there's a, <laughs> there is a, there is a method to counting coals and how you place them. And that's one thing that I, that was real interesting with Scott. Scott always used charcoal. The briquettes. Or, the briquettes. Yeah. And you always want to use a, a, a better quality briquette because they will stay hotter longer. The cheaper ones will dissolve, will dissipate quicker. Mm-hmm. And you have to keep adding more of them on. But, uh, you know, I never grew up using briquettes. We used wood. Yeah. And if you're from Northwest Oklahoma, you're either burning elm or cottonwood. <laughs> you use a lot of wood. So, you know, there's times that when we go to horse camp, we might use a rick and a half of wood, you know. And uh, one of the, the, the great things about that, we go to uh, Hugo or down to, to uh, McCurtain County and have horse camp. And they say, how much wood do you need? And I said, well, we usually burn about a rick to a rick and a half. And he brings me a, a rick to begin with. And we use maybe a fourth of a rick. So, <laughs> because the wood is harder, it burns burns longer. Oh, man. Yeah. That, the red oak you okay. had and things was just a higher quality wood, created more heat. We didn't have to keep putting more wood in. So those are things that we learn, you know, ourselves as we go. So uh, don't really use a lot of briquettes. Use mainly, okay. mainly wood because okay. whether you're go- wherever you're going to cook, most generally, unless you're going to a city park or something like that, there's plenty of... of Something to firewood. It's a little bit more. You're usually having a little bit more rural area, right? Yeah, I think I say like when we go camping, my husband he's done those cowboy cooking competitions, so he does do the the briquettes because the wood is hard to come by kind of out here. And if you go to like a campground, you have to take your own. um, In some you know areas because you either have to buy it or whatever. So I would that's why I was asking because it's an interesting thing. The other thing about briquettes is you can get a fire going quicker and you can. And you can get your food cooking quicker. Mm-hmm. Right. Whereas if you're using wood, you have to wait till that wood starts to break down to make coals. Yeah. So, you know. A little bit longer. You know, if you want a, if you want a seven o'clock breakfast, you know, you might start the fire at 3.30 or 4 in the morning just to have coals to start cooking to have breakfast at 7. Whereas if you're using briquettes and you fill up your briquette chimney you can have briquettes in 30 minutes or less yeah (laughs) so it goes back to the the atmosphere you want to project or what you're trying to to uh, accomplish with your cooking too you know Mm -hmm. some people like to to go outside the box and say well i want to try this and then oh burnt that set of biscuits So, well, okay, Add more that's, butter. That's, that's, that's part of it, you yeah. know. Oh, I forgot to turn the pot and now I got some hot spots underneath, you know, my my pie or my cobbler. Yeah. So it's a it's a real learning experience to cook with a Dutch oven. And, and all you got to do is just get out there and just get started and, and experiment. So I think something that we've all kind of participated with Tommy in is that he had a pretty successful Master Cattleman program. Uh, what was it, three years ago? Yeah. All right. He had, what, and how many participants? It was over, was it 30, around 30 participants at the Master Cattle? Not every night. I mean, we were no. consistent every night, but. We had 35 that was registered, and, mm-hmm. and I think consistently we were about 28, 29. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. So it was pretty, pretty well attended. I would always say in Alfalfa County, the producers are really interactive. I don't know. Would you guys agree? I mean, they usually, we usually have a couple good questions after presentations. And so it went on probably, we did a pretty like concentrated session, probably eight to 10 weeks and, and crammed everything in, but I think it worked out really well. Um, covered all topics, economics, uh, animal science, of course. And there were some probably agronomy topics as well. So, um, I guess to wrap this up a little bit, you can hear, uh, just, I'm, you can hear Tommy's passion for his job and the extensive experience he has from across the, um, different areas of extension. He really is. Um, I think he's been kind of a mentor to all three of us, um, as area specialists, he's been in the job a lot longer than us. Um, but, uh, we've got to do a lot of fun things, whether it's a fly trial, we'll probably talk about that some other time, but, or, uh, you know, diving into livestock economics, you know, we did some short sessions on that or lots of wheat pasture in Alfalfa County. So I know, um, and, uh, wheat acres. And I know Josh got involved in that. So I appreciate Tommy coming today. I'm sure we'll have him back because we could talk for another hour, I think on all the things, but, um, thanks for coming today, Tommy. Thank you. And, uh, and, and I want to thank you, you, you all as area specialist again for, for helping us in our job. That's what makes it go good because you got to remember we're generalists in the County and we need that specialization to help us think outside the box. Because without you all, I can't think outside the box to bring in those specialized programs. So mm-hmm. it, it's a extension's a great uh, community, and it's it's great to have fantastic coworkers to work with. So yeah. and and the other county staff cross lines, you know. So absolutely. Yeah. Well, with that, uh, thank you for listening, and we'll see you next week. We hope you've enjoyed what you've heard. If you would like to hear more or follow up on the discussed topics, please reach out to your local county extension agent. OSU has a presence in all 77 counties with educators eager to assist you. Also, please consider checking the description for links to our social media pages and further information pertinent to the conversation. Thanks again, and we'll talk to you soon.